All right, folks. Just wanted to give you a chance to join. This is a little bit experimental, so bear with me for just a minute. Okay, I'm hearing feedback here. Can you just let me know in the chat if everything is working okay? Okay, I'm just hearing myself all the time, so I just have to do something here to make sure that... Okay, sorry about this. Uh, I've never done a live stream on Telegram before, so I'm just hearing myself all the time. Um, sorry about this. I'll just do this. There we go. Okay. So if you can still hear me, then everything is fine and we can get going. Can I just get a thumbs up in the chat that you can hear me? That I didn't turn off my mic or anything? Okay, good. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um, and welcome to Fight Club. This is a fundraiser debate. This is a part of the fundraiser for Guide to Culture to keep us going. And uh, so I wanted to give something special and unique and exclusive to those who wanted to support the channel. And so I invited two gentlemen to do a debate about a very important topic. I've invited E. Michael Jones and Greg Johnson to talk about the war in Ukraine. Let me just get the exact topic title is nationalists in the West should support Ukraine against Russia in the current war. That is the debate topic that we're going to get into. And first of all, I want to thank all of you for registering and buying a ticket and signing up. Uh, I can't do any of this work without your support, so thank you so much for doing that. And I want to give a special thanks, of course, to the two gentlemen who um, agreed to do this debate. Uh, Greg Johnson is a good friend of mine, and he's always very supportive, very helpful. Uh, and I don't think I've ever asked him if he wanted to speak at one of my events or anything like that, and he said no. So he's always very helpful, and I'm very grateful uh, for him doing this. And Dr. Jones, of course, is uh, also always a great guest to have on. And even if uh, we don't agree on all issues, we always have great conversations. And he's always been uh, generous with his time and uh, um, been willing to uh, go on this channel and have conversations with us. So I'm very grateful for that. Uh, the topic we're going to talk about tonight is a very important topic. It is. Um, something that 
I think we can all agree probably that it is the most significant war since World War II in Europe. And uh, in fact, uh, just last night, it just got even more real uh, to me because I found out that a person who I know, who is a, a young man uh, who was an intellectual and a soldier, and he knew Ukrainian, Russian, English, French, uh, Sanskrit, Romanian. He translated books by uh, Eliad, Dumezil, uh, Benoit, and others, and uh, knew many languages, and he was also a soldier. And I found out that he joined the ranks of the fallen in Valhalla. He uh, died on the battlefield just a few days ago. So it really hit home that this is an important topic and it shouldn't be taken lightly. And that's why uh, I think it's important that we have this discussion um, like we're gonna have tonight. Now, uh, we, we're already running late because I had some trouble sending out instructions to all the viewers. So um, without further delay, I am going to... Uh, I am going to introduce the speakers. It looks like everything is working. So, uh, first of all, Greg Johnson, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Are you there, Greg? Uh, yeah. Can you hear me okay? Yes. I can okay. Hear you I thought I had myself muted and I was fumbling around. I apologize. Uh, thank you for having me on. I, I appreciate it. Okay, and uh, we also have Dr. E. Michael Jones. Thank you so much for doing this, sir. Uh, welcome You're to welcome. the show. You're welcome. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, I know we're somewhat pressed for time, so I don't want to talk too much before we get going with the debate. Uh, the topic we're going to talk about is uh, nationalists in the West should support Ukraine against Russia in the current war. And uh, I believe it's customary for the person answering the question in the affirmative to go first is... Uh, do both of you agree with that, Dr. Jones? Yes, yes. Greg? I, I'm fine with that, yes. Okay, so uh, what I'll do is I'll uh, leave the floor to Greg to give his opening statement, then Dr. Jones will give his opening statement, then they will give a reply to each other, uh, uninterrupted, of course, and then we'll leave the floor open to a more natural back and forth and also open up uh, the floor for questions from the audience. Is that okay? Yes. Okay, so uh, I'll leave the floor now to you, uh, Greg, and I'll mute myself and mute uh, Dr. Jones, and you will have uh, an opening statement uninterrupted. The floor is yours. I want to thank Frody uh, for hosting this debate. I want to thank Dr. Jones for taking part. Uh, I want to thank all of you out there for participating and buying tickets. It's very important to support Guide to Culture. I want to argue that nationalists in the West should support Ukraine against Russia in the current war. But I need to define support. I want to make a distinction between moral support and material support. The case for moral support is simple. I'm a nationalist. That means I, suppose, I support a world of different sovereign states. A sovereign state does not answer to another state. That's what makes it sovereign. A sovereign state gets to choose its own friends and enemies. Specifically, I'm an ethno-nationalist, meaning that I think the best kind of sovereign states are ethnically homogeneous homelands, the homelands of a particular people. I support the rights of distinct peoples to their own sovereign homelands if they feel that this is the way, uh, the best way that they can preserve themselves and flourish in this world. Diversity 
even uh, the diversity uh, that exists between two very culturally and racially similar peoples like the Ukrainians and the Russians, when it has to live under the same government in the same social system causes conflict. We hear, for instance, that Russians in Ukraine, there are ethnic Russians in Ukraine, there are also Ukrainians who speak Russian as a first language. We hear that Russians in Ukraine feel oppressed by the fact that the Ukrainian government requires everybody who lives in Ukraine to learn Ukrainian in school because Ukrainian is the government of the majority population, the founding population of the state, and it's the government, uh, it's the language of government. Uh, there are Russian speakers in Ukraine. There are Hungarian speakers in Ukraine. I'm told that there are Greek and Bulgarian speakers in, in Ukraine. Uh, we're told that the Russians feel oppressed by this because that's what happens when you have people with different ethnicities, different cultures, having to live together under the same system. Uh, of course, if multiculturalism is oppressive uh, for Russians under Ukrainian rule, it's also going to be oppressive for Ukrainians under Russian rule. The ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine is therefore a bad thing. Uh, it's bad because Ukraine is a sovereign nation that's being overrun. And it's also bad because Ukrainians are a distinct people who are better off ruling themselves than being ruled over by Russians. But, but what about those minorities in Ukraine? What about the Greeks? What about the Hungarians? What about the Russians? What about the Bulgarians? Uh, if these people feel oppressed because of the requirement to learn the dominant language, uh, should we should we be concerned about that? First, we have to point out that they're not being forbidden to use their mother tongue. They're simply uh, not being given parity with the dominant language of the country. They're required, in effect, to be bilingual if they want to deal with the government. The language of government is to be Ukrainian. In the 19th century, the Russian czars, Tsar Alexander III, did ban the Ukrainian language in Ukraine when, when Russia ruled over Ukraine. Uh, that is one of the reasons why so many Ukrainians today speak Russian as a first language. It's similar to the process by which the Irish and the Welsh and the Scottish uh, became primarily English speakers. It was the language of the dominant group, and it forced their indigenous languages to the margins. The Ukrainians are trying to restore the centrality of their language and culture in their state. Now, if Ukrainian minorities find this intolerable, they, do, they can take solace in the fact that right across the border are lands where their language is the official language. Hungary for the Hungarians, Russia for the Russians, Bulgaria for B Bulgarians, and so forth. Ukrainian minorities all have homelands they can move to if they feel terribly alienated in Ukraine. But Ukrainians have only one homeland, Ukraine, and because of the Russian invasion, they're in danger of losing their independence. So the, the situation of the Ukrainian majority is far more dire than the situation of minorities in Ukraine, minorities that we hear about. Well, we, we hear a lot about the Russian minority in this case. 
Now, if different peoples have the right to their own homelands and sovereign nations don't have to answer to other countries, then Russia's invasion is clearly immoral. It's immoral because it violates Ukraine's sovereignty, and it's immoral because it deprives the Ukrainian people of self-rule in their own homeland. Now, Russia's rationale for this is fourfold, basically. The first and foremost rationale, the real rationale, is that Putin doesn't want Ukraine to join NATO. They don't want NATO on their border. But since sovereign nations have the right to choose their friends and their enemies, Putin's invasion to abrogate that right is simply wrong. It crosses a moral line. Now, cynics and realists like to say that bullying small nations is just what big nations do. That's what great powers do. And it's just not prudent to stop them because they're big and they might hurt us. But political realism also recognizes that small nations band together to protect themselves from big nations, which is why Ukraine wanted into NATO. Ukraine's, uh, Russia's invasion is not an argument against getting into NATO. It's an argument against not getting into NATO, an argument against failing to get into NATO, because this invasion wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't have been prudent for Putin to attack a NATO country if Ukraine had actually gotten in. Now, there are three other kind of throwaway rationales that Putin has given. Uh, one is that uh, Ukraine is oppressing Russians in the East. Another is that Ukraine is full of Nazis and we need to denazify the world. And the third is that Ukraine is a fake country. Well, requiring Russian Ukrainians to learn Ukrainian in school is not oppression. Uh, Ukraine has been fighting a Russian-backed insurgency in the East since 2014. Russia demands that Ukraine recognize its breakaway client states in Donetsk and Luhansk are being rejected by the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians think that giving up this territory would not bring them peace. Uh, so why do it, basically? I think that's their, 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 deep, uh, their deepest reason is that uh, if they could get peace by giving up territory, maybe, but they know that it will just lead to Russia having uh, borders closer to Kiev and then new demands being tendered. They think this is the case because Russia took uh, over Crimea in 2014. Now they're trying to take over Donetsk and Luhansk in, in 2022. Another reason that this doesn't fly uh, is that uh, it's not necessarily an ethnic battle when you get on the ground in the Donbass because there are many, not only Russian-speaking Ukrainians, but ethnically Russian Ukrainians who don't want to be ruled from Moscow, and they're taking up arms to fight this. Uh, so I, I think that uh, this is probably the, the place where the Ukrainians have the most room to negotiate. I think losing this territory wouldn't be a bad thing in the end if it could bring peace, but they don't believe it'll bring peace. And that's the reason why they, they reject this out of hand. The other charges that Ukraine is a fake country full of Nazis, uh, those are more ominous. They're more ominous because I believe they're implicitly genocidal. If you say that Ukrainians don't really exist as a nation, uh, you're basically saying that uh, their national self-consciousness is false consciousness. Uh, and false consciousness is the kind of thing that can be educated out of you. You can be re-educated. Uh, that should be extremely ominous. Uh, when, the, uh, when Putin says that their purpose is to denazify Ukraine, 
this isn't just a reference to the Azov Battalion. It's not boob bait for old Russians who think the Second World War is still happening. It's not Putin trolling the Western media. Russians have a history of declaring their enemies, indeed entire peoples, as being reactionary, fascist, Nazi, etc., and basically as therefore targets for destruction, targets for re-education, for assimilation into something else, if not worse. Uh, at very least, it's again an, a, a, a declaration of the intent of what you can call cultural genocide. Uh, Putin is using Nazi in the same way that Jewish organizations and the Jewish press in America use Nazi to refer to the nationalism of any group that they don't favor. And if you want to denazify Ukraine, that means basically destroying Ukrainian nationalism, which is equivalent to destroying Ukrainian national consciousness. Again, you might wipe the Ukrainians out in their own minds as a prelude to basically assimilating them into uh, a larger Russian, Russian society. Uh, it's genocide by the definition of the United Nations and genocide is a bad thing. So as far as I'm concerned, the right is on the side of the Ukrainians and we should therefore give them our moral support. Nationalists in the West should give moral support to the Ukrainians. What about material support as well? Yes, I believe that we should give material support to the Ukrainians, but with significant qualifications. Individual nationalists should offer whatever support they can. European nations are offering humanitarian and military aid as well. That is appropriate. Economic sanctions, those are also appropriate. But let's be careful here. The United States followed the path of military aid and economic sanctions into two world wars. With nuclear weapons, it would be the last world war. We can't afford a third one. Thus, nationalists should offer material support for Ukrainians. We should support material support, but we should stop well ahead of any widening of the war, especially involving the United States and NATO, because that's dangerous to the whole world. So in sum, nationalists should give unqualified moral support for Ukraine as a victim of military aggression and, and as a target of cultural genocide. And we should offer material support that stops short of a wider war. Thanks. Excellent. Thank you so much. Uh, I am going to give the floor to Dr. Jones. First, I just want to thank one person that I forgot to thank in the beginning, and that is Gaddius Maximus. Gaddius Maximus sent a generous donation uh, on Entropy, and he said that this, here, is a, here, are, here is a couple of sponsored tickets for folks that you can invite in chat today. And so if you find yourself in the audience and you haven't bought a ticket, uh, you can thank Gaddius Maximus uh, and his generosity. So thank you so much for that. Uh, Dr. Jones, I'll leave the floor to you and give you a chance to give an opening statement. Thank you. Thank you. One of the most puzzling features of the current war in the Ukraine is the alliance between Jews and Nazis which makes up the base of its current government. When Catholic neocon pundit George Weigel was confronted with this fact, he dismissed it as a conspiracy theory. Before long, however, the same mainstream media, which could no longer deny reality, decided to spin what they could no longer, no longer deny instead. And so we read in the Washington Post that uh, 
would-be militants have been recruited by groups like the Azov Battalion, a far-right nationalist Ukrainian military and political movement. Azov was absorbed into the Ukrainian National Guard in 2014, has been a basis for Putin's false claim that Ukraine's government is run by neo-Nazis. Well, wait a minute, this, there's a little bit of confusion here. They were absorbed, we know they were Nazis, they were absorbed into the government's military force. So why is that a false claim? Why is that a false claim? Things get really confusing a little later on because Western white supremacists and neo-Nazis for the most part, this is from the Washington Post, do not support the current Ukrainian government and not simply because of its ban on anti-Semitism, President Vladimir Zelensky's Jewish heritage or other specific matters. Ukraine is a developing democracy, which far-right extremists oppose as contrary to the fascist governments they want to see. As the administrator of a popular German and English neo-Nazi chat group wrote, while urging members to join Azov, I am not defending Ukraine, I am defending National Socialism. At this point, the Anti-Defamation League got involved, but only to muddy the waters even further. On March 4th, the Anti-Defamation League published an article by Andrew Skrulevich, uh, its director of European affairs, to minimize the Nazi problem in the Ukraine. The article was promoted in a March 15th email newsletter from ADL CEO Jonathan Greenblatt on, quote, how anti-Semitic conspiracy theories and other misinformation are spreading in the wake of the invasion. Okay, so it's an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. Oh, wait a minute. In order to uh, downplay the present-day cult of Bandera and support for Nazism in the Ukraine, the ADL finds it necessary to re rewrite some history. In effect, Holocaust revisionism. Skrulevich's article takes the form of Q&A with David Fishman, a professor of Jewish history at the Jewish Theological Seminary. Fishman is also a member of the Academic Committee of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. We've seen, he says, Torchlit marches in the middle of Kiev with the red and black flags of the UPA and pictures of Stefan Bandera, who allied with the Nazis during World War II. Isn't that evidence of Nazism in the Ukraine? To which Mr. Fishman says, for Ukrainian nationalists, UPA and Bandera are symbols of the Ukrainian fight for Ukrainian independence. The UPA allied with Nazi Germany against the Soviet Union for tactical, not ideological reasons. Okay, so it's it's okay if you're a Nazi, but uh, only for tactical, not ideological reasons. For Jews, however, he continues, not only is allying with the Nazis unforgivable under any circumstance, but historians have documented that Ukrainian nationalists participated together with Germans in the murder of many thousands of Jews in the Ukraine. Well, wait a minute. So why isn't that wrong? So let's try to contextualize this back and forth, this confusing back and forth. So just to contextualize this, the Canadian truckers, remember them who were protesting COVID restrictions were Nazis because Hong Kong equals Heil Hitler, uh, as one Jewish member of parliament said. But the same Azov Brigade, which descended from Ukrainian nationalists who participated together with Germans in the murder of many thousands of Jews in the Ukraine and sports swastikas on their helmet, are not Nazis because they allied with Nazi Germany against the Soviet Union for tactical, 
not ideological reasons. So you got that? Well, probably not. The only way we can put an end to this confusion is through a sort, short survey of Ukrainian history. The country we call Ukraine is a land of constantly shifting borders, which only became an independent country in 1991. During the late classical and early Byzantine period, Ukraine was known as Khazaria after the tribe that converted to Judaism in the ninth century. In 1236, Nicholas Donan, a rabbi who had converted to Catholicism, met with Pope Gregory IX and asked him if he knew about the blasphemies in the Talmud. Full of indignation, Pope Gregory turned to Raymond Peñaforte, then head of the newly created Dominican order, and told him to organize a campaign to convert the Jews. The campaign enlisted St. Thomas Aquinas, who wrote the Summa Contra Gentiles, as well as Raimondo Martini, who contribu whose contribution was Puge Ophidie, the Dagger of Faith, Adversos Iudias at Mauros, against Jews and Moors. And it culminated in the disputation of Tortosa, which took place from 1413 to 1414. The disputation had disastrous consequences for the Jews who dissembled about the blasphemies the former rabbis exposed. The fact that they were unable to give a rational defense of their religion led to massive conversions on the part of the Jews. By the end of the 15th century, Western Europe was effectively Judenrein, because the Jews living there had either converted to Christianity or more importantly for our purposes, moved to Poland, whose boundaries at that point included what is now the Ukraine. Beginning in 1264 with the promulgation of the Act of College by Duke Boleslav the Pious, the Polish nobility granted Jews unprecedented legal rights, turning Ukraine into the Paradisus Judaeorum. The Jews reciprocated by abusing their privileges and enslaving the peasant population through the monopolies they enjoyed in usury and the production of alcohol. Four centuries later, the inevitable reaction arrived when the Cossack hetman Bogdan Shmilnitsky inaugurated a series of pogroms beginning in 1648, which eventually plunged Ukraine into war and revolution. According to Wikipedia, Shmilnitsky was a petty nobleman and Cossack officer who was unable to obtain justice for wrongs suffered at Polish hands. According to Heinrich Graetz, the father of Jewish historiography, a Jew by the name of Zachariah Subilensky had played him a trick by which he was robbed of his wife and property. Another had betrayed him when he had come to an understanding with the Tatars. Besides injuries which his race had sustained from Jewish tax farmers in the Ukraine, he therefore had personal wrongs to revenge, to avenge. The Shmelnitsky pogroms took place roughly three centuries I'm sorry, roughly three decades after the term white was first used to describe human beings in a play about Virginia, the Virginian tobacco plantations. The term white has no bearing any place on the earth and eventually not in the kingdom, and certainly not in the kingdom of Poland and Lithuania where the fault lines were ethnic and religious. After the first partition of Poland in 1791, Ukraine became the southern part of the Pale of the Settlement. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, the Pale had a Jewish population of over 5 million and represented the largest component, 40% of the world's Jewish population at that time. 
in spite of what they suffered at the hands of Chmielnitsky, the Jewish population increased by 300% during the period from 1795 to 1918. After the partition of Poland, Russia awoke to find itself the home of 1,600,000 Jews on their crucial border with the West and all of the radical ideologies which were circulating in the West during the 19th century. The Jews who had checked out intellectually with the rise of the Hasidim movement, which followed the disillusionment Jews felt at Shabbatai Zevi's conversion to Islam in 1666, were now exposed to the thought of the German enlightenment in a language closer to the Yiddish the Jews spoke than Russian. According to Wikipedia, most Jews could not engage in agriculture due to the nature of the pale of the settlement and were thus predominantly merchants, artisans, and shopkeepers. Alexander Solzhenitsyn tells a different story in 200 years together. The Jews refused to engage in physical labor. When the government gave them horses and plows, they immediately sold them and lived off the money they earned from the sale. The universities, which were founded in the 19th century, uh, in 19th century Russia, became, as a result of these influences, hotbeds of Jewish subversion. According to the Wikipedia account, the large Jewish population was bound by numerous legal disabilities and from 1881 victimized by recurrent waves or pogroms. Missing from the Wikipedia account was the role which Jewish radicals played in the assassination of the Tsar in 1881, by the way, an act which was carried out by Nardnaevolia, which even Richard Pipes calls a Jewish terrorist organization. Jewish terrorism led to pogroms, which led to mass migration to the United States, where the Jews nursed their ancestral animus against Russia and longed for the opportunity to return to the Ukraine and set the record straight. In the aftermath of World War I, authority broke down in the Ukraine, random violence increased, in particular a ferocious wave of pogroms against the Jewish population. In the aftermath of World War I, many nations, including Poland, Czechoslovakia, and Yugoslavia, to name three, emerged from the empires which collapsed, but Ukraine, Ukraine was not one of them. In 1925, Stalin dispatched Lazar Kaganovich to the Ukraine to stamp out nationalism and promote industrialization, including the industrialization of farming. The result was the Holodomor of 1932-33, during which four million Ukrainians starved to death. Because of the Holodomor, the Germans who invaded the Soviet Union in 1941 were greeted as liberators by some of the Ukrainian populace. One of those Ukrainians was Stefan Bandera, who ended up collaborating with the SS Einsatzgruppe and killing large numbers of Jews and Poles. The Jewish president of the Ukraine is now one of the biggest supporters of Bandera's progeny, who now make up the Azov Brigade, which is now asking for international support to fight for the so-called ethno-state known as Ukraine against the Russians. The new era of Ukrainian history began when Ukraine emerged as a nation from the wreckage of the Soviet Union in 1991. The same Jewish neoconservatives who promised Mikhail Gorbachev that they would not extend NATO one inch to the east overthrew the legitimately elected government of Ukraine in 2014 and installed a Jewish puppet as its new president. 
that Jewish puppet has been replaced by the current Jewish puppet, who is now holding the Ukrainian people hostage. As the history I have recounted shows, the current conflict in Ukraine has nothing to do with race, but it has a lot to do with the history, the Jewish history of the Ukraine and their desire once again to use the Ukrainian people as human shields to advance their agenda. This is literally case in Mariupol where the Jews Nazi proxy warriors are refusing to let the Russian civilian population leave the city. After the coup, which Victoria Newland staged in 2014, Ukraine became the gay disco. As the Henry Hoff video I tweeted yesterday makes clear, the same Jews who are turning Ukrainian civilians into human shields are using the white boys who volunteered to defend the gay disco as cannon fodder. We have, in other words, a replay of Charlottesville, where people like Mr. Johnson are urging the white boys to pick up spears and charge the machine gun nest. What was stupid then is suicidal now. White nationalism, according to Mr. Johnson, should be a one-issue political outlook. White nationalism is for the interest of whites and against the interest of our racial enemies, period. Anything else is beside the point. That means that white nationalists must work to unite all whites into a self-conscious racial community rallying around our common racial interests. White nationalism has only one message for homosexuals. White homosexuals have more important interests in common with other whites than they do with non-white homosexuals. We have to resist falling for any form of the divide and conquer strategy used by our enemies to destroy our solidarity as a prelude to destroying our race. Battles between gays and straights, men and women, pagans and Christians, Nordics and Mediterraneans, Celts and Wasps, Germans and Slavs, etc., have no place in the white nationalist movement. They will always be used by our enemies to divide and subvert us. If Mr. Johnson is against battles pitting Germans against Slavs, why is he now pitting Slavs against Slavs in the Ukraine? Are the Ukrainians white or are the Russians white? Ultimately, this discussion isn't about race. It's about religious opposition to the gay disco. Ukraine is the easternmost province of the gay disco Russia is fighting Ukraine because of that, not because of racial differences. We know that Mr. Johnson promotes the gay disco, but is he willing to die for the gay disco? Or is he going to encourage other white boys to go over there and die in his place? Thank you. All right. Uh, Greg, are you ready for a reply? Yeah, certainly. Uh, I find it embarrassing. The okay, I, I'm uh, for once I'm speechless. For once I'm speechless. Uh, I find it embarrassing that Westerners basically have a narrative about the uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict that sort of drops the Ukrainians out of the picture as if by a trap door uh, and makes it all about uh, the United States versus Russia. Uh, 
and also uh, seemed to be very, very focused on LGBT issues and things like that. Uh, and because that is, I think, one of the things that doesn't separate the Russians and Ukrainians uh, for the most part. Uh, certainly not the Ukrainians who are taking up arms against the Russians. So uh, I, I just think that that's, a, 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 as the kids like to say, a cringe narrative that has almost nothing to do with the war. Uh, I am a white nationalist. What does white nationalism mean? It means that I believe in the ethnic self-determination of white peoples. Uh, that means that I believe in ethnic self-determination for Ukrainians and for Russians. And obviously, if Ukrainians and Russians are fighting against one another, uh, one has to look and say, well, who started this? Who is infringing upon the ethnic self-determination of the other? And I think that I've made a case that it's, it's the Russians who are infringing upon the ethnic self-determination of the Ukrainians. Ukraine is the only homeland they've got, and it is now under assault. Uh, it's under assault not because there's a global crusade against gay discos, not because there's even a global crusade against Nazis, although apparently Putin wants us, some people to think that, uh, but because of Russian geopolitics. Uh, Russia wants to keep the borders of NATO far away, and they use the weakness of the United States in the current moment as an opportunity uh, to invade uh, Ukraine. Uh, I think that as a nationalist, I can't countenance that. I especially can't countenance it because it is a, uh, it's clearly uh, framed in terms uh, that have to be described as uh, implicitly genocidal. Uh, when P Putin says that Ukraine isn't a real nation, that Ukrainians aren't a real people, that is really uh, equivalent to saying that what they think is their nation, their, their identity, is false consciousness that can be educated out of them. Uh, it's a declaration of the intent to commit cultural genocide against these people to basically turn them into something indistinguishable from Russians. Uh, I think that that's clearly wrong. So I've made a dual case. It's, it's, a, it's a, a moral problem to attack a sovereign nation, and it's especially a moral problem to uh, frame this in terms of the the cultural genocide of a distinct people. So that, that I think, is, what, is what's going on here. That's what's wrong with the, um, with the invasion. Uh, I, I think that the framing of this by Russian propagandists in the West uh, is, uh, is absurd. It's ridiculous. Uh, but it is the one great victory that we can say the Russians have won. Uh, they seem to be pretty bogged down in Ukraine. Uh, they haven't advanced much past the first week. Uh, it's been over a month now. Uh, but they have somehow bamboozled a huge percentage of nationalists and people on the right in the West, uh, nationalists and nationalist-adjacent people who tend to be superficial reactionaries who are willing to uh, basically bless the... Uh, destruction of one of the whitest nations in Europe 
uh, by a multicultural empire because said multicultural empire uh, bans uh, LGBT, LGBT propaganda in the schools, which should be done everywhere, to be perfectly honest, and uh, is building churches, right? Uh, I, I think those are fairly superficial reasons to support uh, what is just a, a criminal invasion of a sovereign station, uh, a sovereign, sovereign nation uh, by an empire. Uh, I, I tend to side with ethnic states over empires all the time. Uh, that, that goes uh, for any ethno state that's resisting the American uh, empire, and it goes for any state that's resisting the, the Russian empire as well. So that's all I have to say in response to that. I think most of the argument that was offered about the history of Jews in Ukraine is, is somewhat irrelevant. I think Jews are on all sides of this uh, conflict. They're on, they're, there are lots of Jews uh, who are very chummy with Mr. Putin. 75% uh, of the oligarchs in Putin's Russia are entirely or partially Jewish in descent. Uh, he is uh, uh, very chummy with Jews. One of my favorite newspaper headlines of all times uh, was, uh, it reads, uh, an army of Jewish billionaires at his side. Uh, Putin dedicates a monument to the uh, Red Army in Israel. Uh, he's their guy too. He has more Lubavitch-style uh, uh, affiliates than the, the sort of Western Jews uh, who are predominant in, in America. But uh, he's very friendly with Jews. Jews are very powerful in Russia. They're very powerful in the United States. They're very powerful in Ukraine. Uh, I think that because they're on all sides of this issue, uh, trying to reduce this issue to a struggle about Jews is just sort of not the case. Uh, the real struggle here, the struggle that matters, is a struggle between a distinct people, the Ukrainians, and their sovereign state, which they want to preserve, and a multiracial empire that wishes to uh, deny their sovereignty and has made some extremely ominous quasi-genocidal statements about why they're doing it. So that's my rebuttal. Thank you so much. And uh, I'm going to leave the microphone to Dr. Jones. And I want to ask everyone in the audience, I want to hear from you as well. Tell me if you're enjoying this format and if this is something that you might want to do more of in the future. Dr. Jones, please go ahead. Oh. Uh, I'm trying, I'm trying, this is confusing. So I'm just trying to get to some type of clarity here, uh, given the positions, the positions that we have. So the, my question is, are, are Ukrainians white? Uh, do you want me to answer that? Uh, yeah, yes, they're, they're, yes. they're, they're, they're a European people. Yes, they're a white people. Okay. Are Russians white? Yes. Well, what's what's the conflict? I mean, why why are you urging white people to fight other white people then? Uh, doesn't I, doesn't this contradict what you just said? No, in that statement no, I just no, read. No, no, it doesn't. Because the statement that I was uh, you were reading is talking about the context of a white nationalist movement in the West, uh, where we're trying to build white consciousness in America, and uh, the. Uh, the, these little, these old world ethnic identities, uh, 
North and South Europe debates, uh, cultural debates, religious debates, things like that are irrelevant. Now, I do believe that there are distinct white peoples, obviously, and that the best nation, uh, best nations are ones that are ethnically defined white nations. Uh, just because I have a expansive understanding of white brotherhood, and I wish that white peoples would stick together around the world, uh, it's simply the truth that there's been a long history of whites fighting whites, and oftentimes one party is clearly in the wrong. Uh, and I, in, in terms of the inter-white fights that have taken place over hundreds and thousands of years, I tend to side for uh, side with the peoples who are fighting for their own ethnic self-determination, their own place in the sun against the empires that wish to absorb them, dominate them. So in this case, I, I think it's possible on the grounds of uh, believing in nationalism and specifically ethnic nationalism to say that the Russians are in the wrong in this particular battle and that nationalists who want to see a Europe where every ethnic group, every people has its own sovereign homeland, we need to oppose the imperialism that the, the Russians are engaged in here. Uh, and, and that's, that's not contradictory to the basic uh, definition of ethno-nationalism as I've laid out in my various writings. Uh, what about American imperialism? American imperialism is a bad thing too. Uh, that's what that's what I mean by the gay disco. So Ukraine is caught in the middle here between two forces, the forces promoting the American, the gay disco, which is the American empire, and the force opposing the gay disco, which is Russia, and Ukraine is in the middle. So how are we going? So both of them are white. So race has no relevance here. Okay, white nationalism has no relevance here. So well, what is what is the relevant issue then, since race is not the relevant issue? Or let me let me back up from that. I, I want to I want to answer that question, but let me back up by asking you another question: Are Jews white? No, they don't think of themselves as white, and therefore we shouldn't think of them as white. Uh, they're a group unto themselves. They have their own agenda, and they're largely hostile uh, to to whites. Uh, at best, they're indifferent to our interests and survival. But are, are Jews in control of the Ukraine right now? Depends. Uh, I would well, say the, the president is Jewish. The president is Jewish. The most powerful people, the richest people in Ukraine are definitely Jewish. So it's a uh, Jewish issue then? I don't think it's a Jewish issue entirely because there are Jews on all sides here that are exercising power. Uh, and therefore, I think in a way, they're irrelevant. Uh, it's not a battle between Jews and non-Jews here. It's a battle between different oligarchies that are rife with Jews uh, in, in positions of great influence. Uh, that's what's the same across the board here. What's different here, the, the difference that matters, is the difference between one people, namely the Ukrainians, who have their own distinct identity and their own distinct state, and other groups that are trying to uh, invade and conquer them. 
That, I, I think, is the relevant conflict here. The Jews are on all sides of this issue, but are uh, the as Jews they often are. They, they hedge their bets by being on all sides of these issues. Now, do the Ukrainians think who are fighting, uh, such as the, uh, the, the person that Brody mentioned today, who is also a friend of mine who died, uh, are the Ukrainians who took up arms against this invasion fighting for their Jewish president? No, they're fighting for their homeland. Uh, if the United States were invaded tomorrow, there'd be many people who would go and pick up guns and go into battle, and they would think uh, you were being disingenuous if you were to say, what, you're fighting for Chucky e. Schumer? You're fighting for uh, Joe Biden? No, no. Uh, these sort of differences are set aside when your homeland is invaded. Uh, I think for the They're most part, but for the most part, I think sensible nationalistic ukrainians think that zelensky is a joke and that democracy is a joke and when you have de multi-party democracy in the most corrupt country in europe you're going to get a zelensky uh, but we cannot admit to the to, to the premise that seems to be sneaking into a lot of western commentary on this that you don't deserve to have an independent country if there are bad things going on there what there's money laundering in your country you can't have an independent country. I'm sorry. Put that gun down. Uh, you know, that, that's absurd. That's a form of, it's, it's basically a form of the same kind of liberal, internationalist, universalist uh, interventionism that says, well, we should go out and make the world safe for democracy. Uh, you, can't have a, you can't have a sovereign nation if there are any bad things happening in it. You can't have a sovereign nation if there are any Jews in it. Uh, these are false premises, and I, I think they're somewhat irrelevant to the battle on the ground, which is the battle between patriotic people protecting their homeland, and yes, saddled with a joke president and a corrupt system. But you know, they prefer they, they would prefer to have the ability to improve their own country rather than lose it entirely. They've already lost enough of their country. <laughs> to outsiders uh, that, you know, they don't want to lose the whole thing. And that's why I think a lot of these people are fighting. Uh, the Ukrainians lost their country in 2014 when Victoria Nuland, uh, the Jewish uh, lady uh, who uh, spent $6 billion to undermine the elected government, uh, staged a coup d'etat. That I don't believe that, that government narrative. That, I think that narrative is entirely constructed. Wait, this wait, is wait. A, this, I, is this, this is a Russian narrative. This isn't, this isn't about whether you believe the narrative, okay? This is about what actually happened. There what was actually coup, happened there was wasn't a, there, a coup. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're, something happened there. It was a coup d'etat. It was a revolution. Victoria Newland, who was there, Put in. We we know what a revolution is. It's a color revolution. They have a handbook at CIA headquarters that follows a certain plan that has been in operation since 1953, when the you know CIA overthrew the Mossadegh government in uh, in Iran. This is nothing new. It was a color revolution. We know the name of the color. We know the way this thing worked. Well, what was the color? Orange. This was has no. That, the Orange Revolution was. This, was wait a minute. That. Wait a minute. Yeah. Wait a minute. You're not letting me finish here. You're talking and talking and talking. This color. This revolution overthrew the elected government and imposed a Jewish dictatorship 
on the Ukraine. And we and what was the outcome? They just passed a law making it uh, a hate or illegal to criticize Jews in the Ukraine. To say that this is the Iranian people, Ukrainian people, is preposterous. This was a Jewish coup d'état every bit as much as Bolshevism was a Jewish coup d'état that overthrew the Tsar in Russia in 1917. And Putin understands this. He has given talks in which he said basically what happened in Russia in 1917 happened in the United States 100 years later. That is exactly the case. And you can't understand what happened here unless you understand the fact that the Jews orchestrated a coup d'état that overthrew the Ukrainian government and now are holding the Ukrainian people hostage, human shields to advance their agenda. This is literally what the Nazi proxy warriors are doing in cities like Mariupol. Okay, they should be able, those people, the Russians are, are ready to let these people out. And it's the Azov Brigade and the Nazis who are holding them as hostages. They're the ones who are putting artillery pieces on top of hospitals. They are the ones who are basically trying to use the, use the Ukrainian people as human shields. That's what's going on here. And to say that it isn't, you're, you're not in contact with reality. You've been watching no, I'm too sorry. much. You've okay, been watching. I, I've, I've you've been to watching. You you've been watching too much CNN. I haven't watched a bit of CNN. Uh, no, I've heard this this uh, narrative that the Maidan, the Revolution of Dignity, whatever, was uh, simply an outside coup. I know people who were involved in it. They weren't working for the CIA. I, I know why it happened. Uh, and uh, we published a, a, a pretty detailed narrative on this recently at Countercurrents. I was watching this happening uh, when, it, when it happened, uh, and I know people who were involved in it. Uh, they weren't working for the CIA. There were many, many forces at work there, all of them native Ukrainian, including extreme Ukrainian nationalists who certainly would not have... Uh, uh, wanted to work for Victoria Newland or the American. Well, was she there? Was she, oh, yeah, there? she was there? There were lots. Was she, of, was she there, handing out cookies to the to the Azov or whoever it was? To, was she handing out cookies? Of course she was. Why okay. was she you're, doing you're, that? You're making a huge leap from cookies to this entire thing can be reduced to the United States handing out cookies and uh, and uh, creating a a. a, a the United States yes. created a color revolution that overthrew the government. If you're not no, saying, if you, it didn't. Well, then we're going to have that, to talk it, about something else because no, you're not that, in contact with reality. No, I'm sorry, you're not, you're, you're not in contact with reality. Contact with reality. You're the one who's reporting, uh, repeating a narrative that was put together by Russia at the time. Uh, the first people who made the claim that this was a CIA revolution were the Communist Party of Ukraine. Uh, it was just standard commie agitprop that they shat out uh, while the thing was at the, ver at the very beginning of the thing. And it has moved, uh, moved without fact-checking, without common sense. Does, does the CIA engage in color revolutions? Absolutely. That doesn't mean that this was a CIA color revolution. Well, the evidence is that it was. No, what was the evidence what was, is what that was, it wasn't. What, what Victoria Newland said it was. What did Victoria Newland say it was? Ah, we're here creating a CIA coup? 
No, she's not going to say that. But she was there helping the people to overthrow their government. She and showed then, up. When? And the first, on the what first day of the Maidan, the first, did she show up? The first person they appointed was a Jewish puppet, wasn't it? On I don't know if he was a Jewish puppet. Uh, the well, first... was he Jewish and was he a puppet? I don't know. Either. You're denying reality. Why did, why did you? Why did the you? Jews, the Jews. Of, his name is Yatz. Remember Yatz? Or what was his last? Oh, first oh I, I remember people claiming that he was Jewish, but I never saw any evidence that he was. Did I? Did oh. I take down his pants and look at his penis? Do you, is that what I have to do here? No, this, no. This, you're, maybe, you're maybe grasp, you look at the you're grasping at straws. No, you're grasping at straws life. here. No, no. This, this is, this is, uh, this is basically, this is, this is one of the narratives that has been passed unquestioned from beginning with the Communist Party of Ukraine, taken up by the by the uh, Russian government, by Russia today. Uh, it is passed by all fact checkers, by all common sense, uh, into the fact mouth checkers. of people. people fact people. checkers. Wait a minute. Fact check is, is a sign you're being lied to. Oh, OK. Uh, OK, that, that, that's fine. Well, um, uh, it's well, passed that's true, by isn't it? Any, by, it's isn't passed it? by any attempt. Do you to, believe to, fact checkers? Do you believe it? I check facts myself, OK? Like but I'm talking about fact check. Section. You mentioned fact checkers. Okay, if you if you think fact checkers are telling you the truth, then all I can say is your mind is occupied Israeli occupied territory. What else can I say? Okay, well that's fine. Uh, fact checking means seeing if the claims that you are being no, I'm uh, talking about the column on the Google page that says fact check. Well, you're that, talking about that. I'm talking about the fact that that unverified propaganda narratives have gone from Russia today through the entire right-wing sphere all over uns.com and out of the mouths of people like Tucker Carlson. That's what's going on here. The, 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 the CIA coup narrative is simply that. It's not true. And it's an attempt by Russians. Ultimately, it goes back to Russia because it fits their geopolitical interests. It's an attempt by Russians to try and drop the Ukrainians out of the equation and frame this as simply a battle between the United States or Globo Homo or the GAE or, as you like to call it, the gay disco and Mother Russia. And that's just a false, right. fake framing. That's a false narrative. Have you watched uh, Zelensky dancing in his high heels? No, no, I have uh, managed to avoid all that. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, the, I think the gay disco image is appropriate here. This is why George Soros is now supporting the Ukrainian side of this thing. He feels that it's a life and death battle for what he believes. And he believes in the gay disco and Russia does not. That's the simple fact of the matter. I don't think this is a crusade, a global crusade on one side or the other for gay discos. I just Are don't you, think that's do you, it. you don't believe that the United States supports the gay disco? Let me, let me just give you, let me just give you, let me just give you, let me just give you one instance. Let one me, instance. Let, okay, I'm in, you, you I'm in me. Berlin. I'm in Berlin. First time I've been there in 30 years. Go to the American embassy and there is the Berlin bear with the rainbow flag around, wrapped around it. This is the official statement of the United States Embassy, and it was in official reference to that Orlando gay disco where people got killed. Now, you're mm -hmm. saying the government does not support the gay disco? The government is the gay disco. I think that putting rainbow flags on things 
is a kind of virtue signaling. That's what our government does. I don't think that this is a, but, but we're talking about wars and revolutions here. I think that's more serious. And I think that there are more serious issues at stake than that. Although given a, that we are a democracy and that public opinion matters, people will whip up uh, public support with these sorts of issues. Uh, th this is why you find, um, you find, uh, you, you find the military industrial complex is terribly agitated about the fate of gays and women in the Arab world. Well, why are they terribly agitated about the fate of gays and women in the Arab world? Well, because that's their bottom line, wars in the Arab world. Uh, so th I think there, there are more fundamental forces at work here than trying to have wars over these sorts of things. I think these are, these are decorative issues. These are superficial decorative issues and that there are underlying struggles here that are far more important. Uh, since uh, this so, has Brody, sort do we of... have any questions, uh, questions from the audience? Yeah, well, since this has sort of uh, developed into sort of a more free discussion, I have a few questions. Um, and, well, I'm, I'm not going to hide the fact that I'm more inclined to agree with Greg on this issue. Uh, so I, I just want to put that on the, on the table. But I have a couple of questions for Dr. Jones uh, regarding what he has been saying. Well, about the gay disco, I mean, I, I don't know if you've visited uh, Ukraine much, but I've been there several times and I've talked to a lot of people there. I know a lot of people there. Do you think that Kiev is a more, quote unquote, gay friendly city than, for example, Moscow or St. Petersburg? Well, what it is now is only what it's been able to develop uh, over a very short period of time. So I don't know. I've never been. To, I've never been to Kiev. I've never been to the Ukraine. So I can't. Oh. I can't tell you anything about the Kiev or, or the gay disco as an actual point of fact. There, this is what okay. the United States represents. I'm saying that when the coup d'état took place, this was the plan for the Ukraine. It's it's the plan for every country. Basically, what we're seeing now is that countries who got involved in the European, in NATO, for example, or in the European Union, like Poland or Hungary, are being forced to join the gay disco. Uh, they're going to be punished if they don't. So to say that this is not a non-negotiable demand on the part of the American empire is simply foolish. Well, you know, the, uh, the punishment uh, that countries like uh, Poland and Hungary are getting consists of uh, their allowance, their, the billions of euros that they're receiving from the EU uh, is being docked. They're docking their allowance. Uh, and I think Hungary and Poland are willing to let their allowance be docked uh, a bit to push back against certain things that they don't like coming out of EU Central. Uh, I, I think that that's a, a kind of a mild situation that they're in. Uh, and, and to think that if, uh, if a country like Ukraine entered the EU, it's all over, boys. You know, you're, you're going to be well, castrating would, would your little they kids. Be, uh, would they be subject to the same pressure? Yeah, they'd probably be subject well, to the, the same gate. pressure. Then you agree with me. Then you agree with me. Then you no, agree I don't agree me. with you because having pressure put on you isn't uh, isn't the, the end of the story. There are countries that are pushing back against that pressure. 
I, I see Poland and I see and Hungary checking, pushing back against that. I think that if, uh, if, if Ukraine enters the EU, and I think it inevitably will after this war is over now, uh, it's, it's going to be one of those states that push backs against, uh, pushes back against some of the dumb ideas coming out of Western Europe and the United States. That would be a good thing. The people who claim that, oh, if they join the EU, it's all over, they're going to be flooded with refugees and they're going to be, uh, uh, you know, having drag queen story hour. That's just a defeatist narrative, again, crafted in Russia. Basically, this is that, preposterous. It, no, Look, it is, have you ever heard of Virginia? Virginia. As, as in school boards in Virginia where the mother gets up and she says, I don't think we should promote pedophilia. And then she's called a domestic terrorist by the attorney general, led to regime change. What is this Russian narrative? That's absolutely crazy. It's happening right here. This is, this is delusional on your part. No, I, I think you're referring to something. You're not referring to what I said. There's a, there's a narrative that is pushed in our circles that if countries in the East want to get involved with something like NATO and the EU, they're inevitably going to be destroyed by that. Uh, and that really is casting Russia as the only force in the world that can resist uh, the pause, the, de the decline, the decadence of the West. I think that's just a false uh, idea. I, 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 think, I, I, I think that there I understand are, that's what you think. There's, your, there's your, a narrative, there's, thoughts, there, are forces of there are forces thoughts. of resistance in Eastern Europe, in Western Europe, in the United States, they're all pushing against, back against these things. And if, if people in the West, nationalists in the West say that, uh, oh, a country like Ukraine is doomed, then they have to believe that their own efforts are doomed. So I don't the think so our right, efforts are doomed. So you're saying that the white... White nationalists should support the gay disco. That's what you're saying. Now, no, more I'm than not that, saying that. What I, about, I think, what and about I think going... that's a stupid, childish no, frame. No, you, okay. you've already admitted it. No, I haven't admitted it. Sure, you have. No, I haven't. Absolutely not. Well, are you support white nationalists should support the American Empire? No, nope, I don't okay. support the American. White Empire. nationalists should support the American Empire in the Ukraine. Nope. Don't well, never said look, that. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, but you did say that. No, nope, didn't say that. You're out of uh, touch with reality. Dr. Jones, I, I have another question. Uh, and, and, and this is also related to what you say, and it's about the, the, the Jews and the oligarchs and so on. And uh, as, as we know, Russia, Ukraine has Jewish oligarchs, and so does Russia. And so my question is about the relevancy of that point. So do you think that Putin wants to end the system of oligarchy in Ukraine, or or why is it relevant? I mean, if if Russia isn't doesn't want to end the system of Jewish oligarchy in Ukraine, then why is that an in, a relevant issue at all? Look, Putin came to power after the Jews orchestrated the looting of Russia. This was orchestrated by Jeffrey Sachs, who stood at the right hand of uh, Boris Yeltsin whose job was to stay drunk as he handed over the assets of the country to uh, seven Jewish oligarchs, okay? There was one more, he wasn't Jewish, okay? Putin comes to power and he basically says, it's my way or the highway. 
So the difference is whether the oligarchs control the president or whether the president controls the oligarchs. He let them stay. He let them have their money, but he was in charge. That's the difference. All right. Uh, I have one more question, and then I'm going to take questions from the audience or if uh, you two gentlemen want to say something else. Uh, but the, the other thing is this about the, an American orchestrated coup. And uh, the thing that I have some problems with with that narrative is that it sort of paints a picture as if the Ukrainians were to were sort of manipulated into rebelling uh, against the sort of the, the Russian sphere of influence. Whereas in my experience, that's not at all the case. Yes, they they did uh, make common cause with uh, Western influence, shall we say. But it wasn't because Western influence created that. It was because they were more than eager to uh, to overthrow any sort of Russian uh, Russian sphere of influence uh, people because they they really hate uh, being under the Russian boot. So so yes, they did ally themselves with with um, the sort of America or NATO forces, but they did so because they already were eager to overthrow the sort of the Russian influence. Would you agree with that? So you're speaking for the Ukrainian people. I'm, I'm not speaking Ukraine, for them. I'm, I'm saying, speaking for my experience. I'm not. I'm, I'm. I'm saying that they're not idiots who were sort of manipulated into doing something by the wicked CIA. I'm saying that they were all. They already wanted to get rid of of Russian influence because they. I mean, the the, the people who are fighting now. They're not fighting because they're manipulated into. Yeah, they're they're you know NATO and the West is feeding them guns and so on. But they're more than eager to fight. I mean, they, they're not. They're they're not being sort of manipulated by the Pied Piper into, into fighting because they want to fight. There's no they there, okay? What you're talking okay. about is, is, is mobile, politically, militarily mobilized groups who can take over the entire country. It's the same thing that happened in Russia at the time of the Bolshevik Revolution. I mean, what, what does what does Bolshevik mean? It means majority, which is clearly what they were not. It was a tiny minority of people who were able to take over the entire country. That's what's going on in the Ukraine. Same playbook, same type of thing. The Jews are collaborating with these proxy warriors uh, that I, uh, very is similar to the situation in Syria, where uh, basically the West was weaponizing ISIS, similar to the situation in Afghanistan, where the big Brzezinski basically uh, mobilized the Mujahideen against the Russians. This is what's going on here. This is where the weapons are going. And uh, if history is any guide to the future, uh, the Jews are gonna turn on these people and destroy them as soon as they get what they want. That's what uh, the United States did to Osama bin Laden. That's what happened to ISIS. That's going to happen to the so-called uh, the Azov Brigade when the Jews get tired of them and get what they want. This has nothing to do with the Ukrainian people. All right. Do you want to say something about uh, this, uh, Greg, before we go to some more questions? Yeah, I just think this is the textbook uh, made in Moscow framing of the issue, which again, uh, this is nothing to do with the Ukrainian people. This is a battle between the West. It's a referendum uh, about the West or Russia. Uh, I, I think that's a false, fake framing uh, that basically drops the most relevant party out of this, which is the population of the country that is being invaded and that is fighting back. Uh, the, the Maidan was a revolution against 
a betrayal by a pro-Russian president who right up to the point of the Maidan uh, had been pursuing the 20-year-long uh, foreign policy uh, of, the, of, the, of Ukraine for greater integration with Russia. Uh, and then suddenly he tore up that agreement and announced he was uh, pivoting towards the, to the east. And uh, it took the whole country by surprise and people filled the streets. And now there were protests against him that had already been organized because he was jailing his political opponents. But it was the specific betrayal about entering the EU that caused hundreds of thousands of people from all walks of life, center, left, and right, to uh, come together and overthrow him. And they claimed that this was just an external revolution. It was just Jews or the CIA. It's, it's just an, an insult to these people. Uh, and it's an attempt to basically, again, make the people on the ground who actually live there, who are living and dying there, uh, who are trying to have their own country, irrelevant. Uh, and I, I, I find that uh, an appalling uh, expression of the arrogance of great power politics. When, when Americans at the beginning of the COVID epidemic started floating conspiracies that COVID was all about hurting Trump, as if it weren't hurting people in Europe and hurting people in India and hurting people in China, I just marveled at the solipsism uh, of, of that outlook. It's, it's like only America matters. Only great powers matter. Only the great power conflicts matter. Who are these peasants? You, you what? You, 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 you uh, that, That's the kind of ugly American arrogance uh, that I that I despise. Uh, the the ugly American solipsism and arrogance that basically wants to, to to treat the people on the ground whose lives are being interfered with as negligible. Uh, their preferences don't matter. Only the, the great game of the great powers matter. Whenever I hear the word keep, geopolitics, keep I want to reach for my revolver. Yeah, you keep talking and you're saying the exact opposite of what I just said. Okay, uh, well, did, that's fine. Uh, let, let's, take the, let's take the questions, okay? Um, because I think we're just talking past each other and maybe taking questions will nudge us out of, the, out of our grooves here. Yes, uh, I agree. Uh, okay, let's get over to the questions. So on entropy, enlightened despot sends thirty US dollars. Thank you so much. Uh, and all of these uh, super chats are great. They go directly to the fundraiser and and help me continue the channel. So thank you so much for them. Uh, then enlightened despot says to Greg, is it really better for the Ukrainian people to encourage and incite and now support this war morally or otherwise? or to have ensured Ukrainian neutrality, uh, forget the US and NATO propaganda from the start and now end fighting uh, and now end fighting and do a deal with Russia. The slaughter of Ukrainians to spite Putin, is it worth it? Okay, so the basically, basically it, wouldn't it be better to just for, for the, as I understand this question, uh, would it be better for the Ukrainians to end the fighting and do a deal with Russia because that would save more lives? Well, eventually they're going to have to uh, end this war. Uh, you know, the war will end with some kind of negotiated settlement. Uh, I think that the, the more damage that's inflicted on the Russians, who after all are the larger 
country. They have a three to one advantage in terms of population. Uh, they're the more powerful country. Uh, they're going to have to bleed a whole lot more before they're going to uh, be willing to treat the Ukrainians equitably. Uh, once, once that happens, once they get to that point, I hope that there's a rapid settlement uh, and it's over with. Uh, but you know, I, I am conflicted on this because on the one hand, it's appalling to me from a purely biological perspective that two nations two great nations, two white nations or predominantly white nations, the Russians, the core of the Russian of Russia are are white people um, and the Ukrainians, both of whom have catastrophically below replacement birth rates, uh, both of whom have terrible problems with drugs and alcohol and suicide and, uh, you know, STDs and things like that. These are sick societies, uh, sick, unhealthy societies. Uh, the last thing they need to be doing is killing one another. It's just sickening. Uh, on the other hand, if you value your own life more than honor and more than survival, well, you'll end up with none of those things in the end. You have to, uh, you have to be willing to lay down your life uh, sometimes for, uh, for your people. And so uh, you, you, you can't value white life so much that you end up being white slaves, put it that way. Uh, if you value white life, you're going to have to uh, be willing to risk it in battle over important issues. And I think that's what's going on with the, uh, the Ukrainians. Uh, they're risking their lives and dying for their people, and they're making it more likely by, uh, by doing so to, uh, to re regain their country's sovereignty in the end. Do you want to comment on this, uh, Dr. Yes, it's, it's preposterous. You're urging people to die in a futile attempt that's not going to serve any good. By encouraging the Ukrainians, innocent people are going to die, and this you're not going. You'll never achieve what you're planning to. You're claiming you can achieve. This war is over. The yeah, Russians, people the were Russians, saying that three wait, weeks wait, ago. Wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This, the Russians have had a column of uh, uh, military military vehicles, tanks, and so on, 24 or 40 miles long, and the Ukrainians can't do anything about it. They can't. Uh, so and when you encourage these people, you're encouraging needless bloodshed. You're encouraging the, the deaths of uh, people, innocent people dying because they're being held hostage in a futile attempt that's only going to increase Zelensky's bank account. When the solution is there, the solution could have been solved. This could have been solved before the war if only someone had listened to Putin and say, okay, yeah, we'll agree that the Ukraine should be neutral. We could have done, they could have avoided that war. This is what Mearsheimer has said. George Kennan have said this. This is when uh, America had adults in the room and we weren't dominated by Jewish neocon warmongers. That's the problem. And anybody who's encouraging these poor people uh, to go there and fight, white boys to go there and fight, has blood on his hands. You're responsible for their deaths by encouraging them. No, the only people responsible for their deaths are the Russians who have invaded the country and set this whole war in motion. They're the ones who bear the ultimate moral responsibility. And uh, the, the idea of human shields, uh, I, I think this needs to be simply dropped as as a bit of war propaganda. What is a human shield? Uh, a human shield, uh, you invade a person's town 
And then if they if they if they fire back at you, uh, you say, oh, they're they're using uh, their 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 neighbors as human shields. No, they're they're fighting where they stand, and the fight has been brought to them by an invader. Uh, there's nothing immoral about picking up your gun and fighting against an invader, no matter wh where you are. Uh, it, it's just a, I think it's a morally heinous idea uh, to basically say that if you, if you don't surrender to aggression, uh, you're guilty of, of using innocence as human shields. Anyway, let's go on to the next question. All right. Uh, Steve sends $30. Thank you so much for that, Steve. He says, on Entropy, and he says, can both of you comment on the fact that Ukraine is being used by uh, US, the U.S. as a money laundering haven? Uh, do you want to go first, uh, Dr. Jones? Yes, it's just part of the criminal abuse of the Ukrainian people that includes uh, now bioweapons. Uh, fact check, as a matter of fact, said this was a complete conspiracy theory that there were biolabs. And then it turns out that none other than Victoria Nuland admitted that it was true under oath because she was speaking under oath. So it's just one more example of the abuse of the Ukrainian people that is being perpetrated by this Jewish cabal that have taken over the country in the same way the Bolsheviks took over Russia in 1917. Greg? I think if Russia uh, takes over Ukraine, that the human trafficking, the biolabs, the money laundering, the oligarchies will simply be under new management. They're not fighting to rid Ukraine of these problems. Uh, there, uh, in it, and at the end of this process, it would simply be under new management. So I, I don't think it's an issue. Again, there's a there's a dangerous premise that's being insinuated here. Uh, you don't have the right to a homeland if there are bad things happening in your homeland, even if they're completely out of your control. You shouldn't fight for your homeland if there are bad things happening in your homeland. You should only fight for a perfect homeland. Only a perfect society has sovereignty, which basically is license for endless wars, right? Uh, oh, there's racism. Somebody did a racism in your country. We're sending in the, the Marines. Uh, th this is the this is sort of Wilsonian internationalism uh, sneaking this is, in here. It's preposterous. Prepo I'm saying the exact opposite. Why are you twisting what I'm saying into the exact opposite of what I'm saying? It's crazy. Okay, what did I say that's the exact opposite of what you said? You're saying I'm a proponent of Wilsonian... No, no, I'm not saying that. I thought you, saying, I just heard you I, say I, it. I, no, I'm saying that the, uh, that the meme that circulates in this discussion that why are these people fighting? Uh, after all, there's money laundering going on in their country. That's a false idea. I'm not saying that. No, I don't. I don't know who okay. you're referring okay. to. That. Then, then, then I'm then I'm not arguing about you, okay? But I am going to argue against. So your 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 whole argument is placed on the premise of if, if the Russians take over, then they will surely do all these bad things. That's preposterous. That's no, not an argument. No, that's not that's what I'm not arguing. an argument. No, that's not what I'm is. arguing. You just that's said not what it. I'm arguing. I. I yeah, of okay. course you did. You just said it. Don't tell me you didn't say it. I didn't say that. You're misconstruing what I said. In any case, let's go on to the next question. 
Okay, so here's another one, uh, and this is uh, from the chat, and we'll go back to the super chats afterwards. But I thought this was a good one from uh, Rain. He says the biggest disagreement with Greg Johnson from me is that when he says that there are Jews on both sides, uh, when in reality 99% of all powerful Jews anywhere in the world are pro-NATO and are screaming for World War III. Uh, what are your comments on that, Greg? Um, there are Jews on Putin's. There are Jews in Putin's corner. There are Jews in the Ukrainian corner. There are Jews in Washington D.C. Um, I just don't think that, therefore, it can be reduced to the Jewish question. Uh, I, I think they're involved in this. Uh, they're they're like oxygen here. They're just, you know, an odorless, colorless gas that seeps into every. And it seeps into everything that that's going on here. I don't know if it's if it's the real question. Therefore, uh, I, I I'm certainly sympathetic to people who are skeptical about them, and and I roll my eyes whenever they uh, they come out with their their latest claims. But uh, if this this isn't a battle against them because they're on all sides here, uh, you know, and and that's that's simply uh, that's simply the reason I don't think this ha this is the question. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, do you want to say something about that, uh, Dr. Jones? So you keep telling us what's not the question, and then we never get around to what's the question. So we started the, the, off with the white, question we started is, off with white nationalism. Well, that's not the issue. Now the Jews are not the issue. Uh, you keep telling us what's not the issue. The issue is the the question of who's right. And who should we support in this battle between Ukraine and Russia? That's the issue here. Uh, it's it's the, the 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 battle is between Ukraine and Russia. It's not between the United States and Russia. Uh, it's between Ukraine and Russia. And my sympathies are 100% moral support to the Ukrainians. They're in the right here, and I would also extend material support to them. But I would be very, very hesitant to do so if this leads to an escalation into some broader war. That, that's that's what I've argued here. That's that's the issue that I argued uh, in my opening statement. And All I just right. want to bring it back to that issue. All right. Uh, let's read some more super chats. Mackay sends twenty U.S. dollars. He says thanks for the excellent streams of late. Just sending the super chat to support the fundraiser. Thank you for your courage. Thank you so much for that. Dan sends 200 Australian dollars, says, thank you for all the great work you put out. Thank you so much for that. Uh, I very much appreciate these super chats. They, they really help uh, help me uh, continue this channel. Phil sends 60 US dollars. He says, Frody, I've been very busy lately, and there's still much content that I have to catch up with. But I just want to let you know that I'm still here, and I'm still grateful for your work, as always. Thank you so much. Phil is a very loyal supporter of the show. Uh, Gadius uh, sends uh, 50 US dollars, uh, as I read at the beginning of this stream. And Sunshine Kid sends 500 US dollars. He says, I've been leeching off of Frody's work for a couple of years now, and it is up. Uh, it is time to pay up. Keep these kinds of debates coming. Uh, you're doing God's work. Thank you so much. That is extremely generous. generous. Uh, thank you so much for that support. Uh, so let me go over to another question here from the audience. Um, and this is from John. Uh, I think this is an interesting one. He says, one of Greg's best sound bites so far was something to the effect of Ukraine's sovereignty shouldn't be sacrificed just because it requires bloodshed. 
in order to, to defend it. But can it be demonstrated that Ukraine continuing the fight against Russia achieves much more than feeding the power and vanity of the Ukrainian government and Azov, um, to say nothing of the global American empire? Is there something at stake for the Ukrainians here that should mean more to them uh, to them and ethno-nationalists than the lives of their people? Uh, Greg, do you want to comment on that? Well, yeah. I, when, when you are a soldier fighting for the independence of your country, you're willing to lay down your life for your independence. Uh, and if you're not willing to do that, then you basically will lose your independence and you will become a slave. If you're not willing to risk your life for your freedom, you will lose it. That's the basic Hegelian master-slave dialectic, right? The, the man who is, um, you know, if, if, if there's a battle to the death and you are not willing to go all the way to, to save your life, you will end up losing your freedom. And uh, uh, so if life is really precious to you, if freedom is really precious to you too, uh, you've got to be a little less sparing with your life. Uh, because if you are the kind of person who puts life at any price above other values, well, often in the end, because there are evil people in the world, uh, criminals, bullies, invaders, uh, the only thing you'll be left with is your life. Uh, everything else will be taken away, uh, including your freedom, your dignity, your homeland, and so forth. We can't be so sparing of our lives that we lose everything but our lives. That's the basic point here. Dr. Jones, uh, what, what do you think about that? I mean, you, you, you've said that basically they're sacrificing these lives for nothing. But isn't that the point, that sometimes you have to be willing to sacrifice your life to be free uh, or, or to not lose everything else but your life, as Greg put it? Yeah, so these, these are such noble sentiments, uh, but they don't apply here because the Ukrainians are being asked to die for the gay disco. It's that simple. This is not a legitimate government. This, is, this was a coup d'etat uh, that imposed Jewish hegemony on this country and the people are being used as pawns. It's that simple. So my question is uh, to Mr. Johnson, have, have you booked your ticket to Kiev yet? Are you going to fight on the side of the Azov Brigade? No, no, I'm not going to go there, but I am giving them moral support and material support. And uh, I think that's, that's enough. So someone else should die in your place. It's their country in the end, not mine. And all those people, all those white boys that are going over there that just got blown up in that attack. What about well, that? I, I, I think to be fair that I don't, I've never heard Greg encourage other people to go from abroad to go to Ukraine. I've been listening to him all night. He couches it in terms of support, material support, euphemisms like this, but he's encouraging people to continue this yeah, war. You're, you're not joining people... the Russian army either. You're not joining the Russian army either. I mean, you're, you, you give moral support to one side and he gives moral support to the other. But there's, that doesn't these mean... are... No, no, no. The Russians are not I mean, asking. You have to keep the some standard the, here of, of no, no, the wait accusation. No, wait a minute. The Russians are not asking for the foreign legion, for mercenaries from all over the world to come and fight at their side. That's what the Ukraine, that's what Zelensky is asking for. And these poor bastards are going to show up there and they're going to be uh, used as cannon fodder. And you people are, if you as uh, the man, uh, I'm talking about Mr. Johnson here, 
uh, by encouraging them, you you are going to cause people to die, and you should not be doing this. Uh, I my conscience is clear on this matter. I, I haven't encouraged anybody to give their life for this. I said I'm for moral support, material support. I spelled out what I think material support is, namely um, sending money and aid, uh, sending weapons, and uh, and also economic sanctions. That's what I uh, spelled out. Uh, I didn't say anything about that. Uh, and, uh, and that's the end of that. So what's the next question? All right. Um, so there's another question here. Let me just uh, find it for you. Um, for some reason, I can't find it right now. Here we go. Uh, this is from Full Moon Ancestry. And this is a question about the outcome of the war. It might be unpopular, he says, but I think the best case scenario for everyone involved in the conflict is for the breakaway regions and Crimea uh, in the east to become a part of uh, Russia and the area west of Kiev to become an updated Ukrainian state, albeit non-NATO and non-EU nation-state. It's not ideal, but that's what I think will eventually happen. So uh, with regard to the outcome of uh, this war and this conflict, uh, let's start with you, Dr. Jones. What, what, what would you like to see as an outcome of the, in this conflict? I think that's what's going to happen. I agree with that, man. It has to happen. There, there's no other solution. The, the West, the Eastern part will be absorbed by Russia. The Western part will have to become neutral. And the only other alternative is World War III. And I don't think the United States is willing to do that. So what they're doing, they're gonna prolong the agony. That's what the United States strategy is. Send lots of very lethal weapons in, encourage the Ukrainians to die in a futile battle that they're not going to win anyway, and then abandon them. That's what's going to happen. Greg, uh, what are your thoughts about the outcomes of this war? Well, back in uh, 2014, uh, when the Ukraine crisis became a thing in our circles, uh, basically, my outlook was the Ukrainians would probably be better off, the nationalist Ukrainians, the Ukrainian Ukrainians would probably be, be better off if they simply were willing to color Crimea gone uh, and, and lose these territories in the east. Uh, they don't believe that. They don't believe that because they don't think that that would ever actually produce peace and a stable border with Russia. Uh, they simply don't trust the Russians and they have every reason not to trust them. Um, I, I think that the, the best outcome here, since there will have to be some kind of negotiated settlement, is that they will probably, uh, they would be best off if they simply ceded Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, these breakaway republics, keep the rest of the, the rest of the Donbass, but cede these territories color Crimea gone and keep the rest of the country. That would be an ideal outcome for them. That's the best possible outcome. Again, I, I don't think they're gonna be in a position to get that good a deal until a lot more Russian generals die, until a lot more Russian tanks are blown is it, up. Is, and, and is this, I, I thought you weren't encouraging this type of behavior here. Here you are encouraging. You're encouraging bloodshed in a futile attempt that's going to fail. It's not futile. It's not futile. It's not futile. People were saying, I'm sure the, in 1970. The... Look, 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 look. Just give me a second here. 
I'm sure in 1979, it was overheard in many places that the Mujahideen didn't have a chance in Afghanistan against a superior. You're changing the subject. No, I'm giving an analogy. You're changing the subject. I'm giving it that column. That column of armored vehicles is still there. The Ukrainian army has been decapitated. They cannot mount any type of effective resistance against this. And all this other chest thumping and grandstanding is going to lead to the shedding of innocent blood. And you're responsible for it. My conscience is clear. I don't believe that the Russians are doing all that well because they've installed for more than three weeks now. Uh, now they're now they're starting to signal, well, we've achieved our, we didn't really want to take Kiev. We're going to pivot to Donbass. I don't believe that for a minute. I hope they find a face-saving way of ending this debacle because I think this is increasingly becoming a debacle for them. I thought, I think they thought this was going to be a lot easier than it turned out to be. Uh, Afghanistan was supposed to be a cakewalk too. And it, it was a there were far the there was a far greater asymmetry between the Soviet Union and Afghanistan than there is between the Russian Federation and Ukraine. I don't think the Russians are necessarily going to win this war. I don't think they are winning this war, and I think that there's going to be a negotiated settlement. Uh, but the Ukrainians are more likely to get a really good deal out of it if they shed more Russian blood. Uh, if more I, I, Russian you're generals making, and you're making die, my point more Russians. You're making my point. You're calling uh, for bloodshed. You're calling, I'm calling for, bloodshed. for bloodshed. I'm absolutely calling for bloodshed. Yes. You just did. Uh, yep. There needs to be more bloodshed before there can be an equitable peace. That's simply the way it is. It's not for you to say. It's not, yeah. it's not your blood. It's not your blood that's going to be shed. Frody. Uh, so Frody, I have a question. Yes. This was supposed to last for an hour. Yeah, and uh, if you do need to uh, cut this uh, short well, here, I mean, or uh, I mean, I, we entered we entered this under certain, you know, we had an agreement to do this. It's been, uh, as far as I can tell, an hour and forty five minutes now. Yes, so sir. So how how can we bring this to a conclusion? Well, uh, if you would like to give us uh, some some final words, uh, uh, then we can bring it to a conclusion. Yeah. Uh, are there any other questions, though? I mean, I don't want to be unfair to the super chatters who've made donations to you. No, but if Dr. Jones want, uh, needs to, uh, I mean, he, I'm, I'm sure he's a busy man. So do, do you want to say something, some final words, Dr. Jones, before you leave? I, I just uh, to I, I just like to reiterate what I said. We started off by uh, this first scenario. Was it... Uh, uh, Mr. Johnson doesn't want to encourage uh, battles between Slavs and Germans, but now he's encouraging bloodshed between Slavs and Slavs in, in an attempt that simply cannot, it cannot succeed. And this just isn't, isn't my verdict. You can watch mainstream commentators like Colonel McGregor, or other people uh, who have some type of military expertise. The Ukrainian military was decapitated in the first week of the war. They cannot mount an effective uh, campaign against the Russians. Given that situation, the logical outcome is to surrender and then to come to some type of amicable, if that's possible, agreement that will minimize the loss of bloodshed. Now, the problem here is that the United States, as they did in Afghanistan, as they did in Syria, is now weaponizing irregular warfare, guerrilla warfare. 
This is what they're doing. So there's no one in charge. I would, I would venture to say Zelensky is not in charge of this operation. There are people, the people who are in charge want to bleed the Ukrainian people to death in order to achieve their goal, which is moving NATO's border within striking distance of Moscow. That's what this is all about. And all of this rhetoric about self-determination of the Ukrainian people is a preposterous, cynical parody of the facts on the ground. All right. Uh, I want to thank you so much for doing this, uh, Dr. Jones. I still have a bunch of questions and comments from the audience, and I'm going to read them because people have been very generous in uh, in uh, buying tickets and, and coming here. Uh, but uh, I, I'm, I'm going to let you leave. Um, I know that you're a busy man. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time and uh, agreeing to do this. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. Uh, Greg, do you want to stay on and... Uh, yeah, while sure. I read some questions. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Absolutely. Uh, okay. Let me see here. Gadius Maximus has gathered some questions for me here. Uh, here's a here's a question from Michael. It's really a question for uh, Michael Jones, but he says here, and I think it's a good question. Aren't the Russian inter interventions in 2014 and now counterproductive for achieving the goal of bringing back Ukraine into? The Russian realm by antagonizing the Ukrainians. This is something that I have been uh, pointing out as well. That a lot of people said two months ago that NATO is an obsolete entity, and that why do we even have NATO? Very few people in Europe are saying that now. So it seems like this invasion has, uh, well, definitely increased the hatred for Russians in Ukraine. Uh, for understandable reasons, but it's also strengthened the moral support for NATO in basically all of Europe. So I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure if this is uh, really achieving the goals of of weakening NATO. If that's supposed to be the the case, and that's something that I've heard from a lot of people on the right as well, that they're saying that NATO is getting their asses kicked in Ukraine. And what I've been saying is that NATO isn't in Ukraine. NATO isn't losing anything here. And if anything, NATO is increasing its own uh, power or uh, moral standing uh, tenfold. Uh, what are your thoughts on this, Greg? I agree with that. Uh, NATO has become stronger. Uh, the, uh, Tukakuru came on the writer's block a couple of weeks ago and shared some uh, polling from Finland. Finland, of course, is a neutral country. Uh, he said that in Finland, maybe 25% of the electorate, sort of boomer con types, had a favorable uh, view of NATO. Now it's over 60%. I think he said 63 or 66% have a favorable view of NATO. And there's talk about Finland entering NATO. Sweden, which has been neutral, is talking about NATO. Uh, my, my initial reaction to this was looking at the Twitterverse and, and, you know, the people who take the mainstream media seriously and CNN seriously and stuff like that. These people are, you know, a hive mind. They, they tend to be foolish. They, they tend to be easily spun by the establishment. And so I was somewhat dismissive of the pro-Ukraine sentiment at first. I was wondering, you know, is this artificial? And since then, I, I've just been talking to more people and 
I'm starting to get the sense that no, it's not entirely artificial. I mean, some of it's fake, as fake as can be, right? Uh, but just as in the migrant crisis, the European migrant crisis, I was starting to hear from people who never had a political thought, much less an unconventional political thought, uh, were suddenly claiming, this is the worst thing in the world. This could be the end of Europe. These were Americans. I never even heard them concerned about Europe, much less Europe's future. And they were seeing this migrant crisis as a mortal threat to Europe. And I thought, that's fascinating. Uh, things are circulating around there and certainly outside outside the mainstream media sphere and the Twitter sphere, right? Which was all refugees welcome. Uh, people were, were coming up with these, these sorts of um, spontaneously um, Eurocentric uh, attitudes and the expressions of European solidarity or white solidarity with Europe. It was fascinating to me. I kept hearing it from the unlikeliest sources in my life. And I know, I know plenty of normies, right? <laughs> so I was hearing it from the normies. This was fascinating. Now I'm hearing the same kind of thing about Ukraine. Americans, uh, I was talking to an American woman who said, I've been shedding a lot of tears recently about what's happening in Ukraine. Really? I didn't even know you knew about a country called Ukraine until recently. Um, you know, the, the, this isn't, uh, you know, this isn't a person who's on Twitter. Right. This is just a person uh, who uh, is is feeling uh, feeling that Europe is under threat and reacting to that. And I'm seeing a lot of this in Europe uh, from from Europeans. Uh, there's a there's a great deal of European solidarity that's happening, uh, and there's a great sense that this is why we have to have something like NATO. Uh, this is why all of Europe needs to belong to something like NATO to pr to protect Europe. You know, Europe, European nations need to look out for one another to protect themselves. That's happening. Uh, I don't think this is just artificial or astroturfed. I think this is coming from a lot of different sides. And uh, it's an unintended consequence of this. NATO's getting stronger. The, 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 the ways in which the United States might be getting weaker uh, through this is, of course, the, uh, uh, the de-dollarization moves that are being made. Okay, that's fine. But you know, the number two currency in the world after the dollar is the euro and the euro is going to take up a lot of that slack. Uh, so um, this is, uh, you know, it might be good for Europe if it's bad for the United States uh, to de-dollarize international trade, uh, especially uh, in things like uh, oil and gas. That's not a bad thing. Uh, and, and, and uh, it might not spell the end of the unipolar moment. It might just give a shift uh, to the inflection or the center of the unipolar moment. It might be more Eurocentric and less America-centric at the end. That's possible. That's an interesting uh, likelihood um, uh, to contemplate. But, but the, the truth is, yeah, this, this has been good for NATO. It's been good for European unity, European solidarity, uh, and those are not good things for Putin. Uh, right. Sympathy for Putin has gone down in the West. Uh, sympathy for Russians has gone down in the West. It's absurd the Russophobia, you know, 
canceling Tchaikovsky and Dostoevsky and Anna Netrebko. <laughs> it's absurd. This it is always ridiculous. takes those. Uh, yeah, it always yeah. takes those stupid forms. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, that's Russian that's children totally being true. harassed in school and so on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. It's it's a very good point. I think this has been bad for. This is not getting Putin what he wants. At the end of this process, I don't think he's going to get a neutral Ukraine. Uh, I don't think it's going to be politically possible for there to be a neutral Ukraine at this point. Uh, before this, it might have been possible for there to be a neutral Ukraine, but there would have had to have been a, a battle royale in the Ukrainian political system to get it. Now, there will be no Ukrainian leader who can maintain a government and be neutral. There can be no Ukrainian leader who can be the least bit conciliatory with the Russians. Uh, right. He has taken a divided nation and unified it against him. Uh, Putin has. Uh, he's taken a divided nation and unified it against Russia. Now, Ukraine and Russia are, they're cousins. They really are like cousins. Uh, an, an analogy for the relationship of Ukraine and Russia would be like the relationship between the United States as Russia and England as Ukraine. Yeah. England is the older country, right? Uh, it, it, it's where their where our civilization, our Anglo-American civilization began. Uh, right. And when you read about American history, eventually it's English history. You know, you go back to before the settling of Jamestown and it's England and our legal tradition has things that were based on events in England's history, the Reformation, the Magna Carta. It's English history uh, at a certain point when you go back far enough in American history. That's true with Russia. Uh, Russia, you know, became uh, Russia. When you look at the history of Orthodox Christianity, when did that begin? It began in Kiev with Grand Duke Vladimir. Okay, so uh, you know they, they're they're related to one another. Uh, it doesn't mean that they can live under the same roof or under the same system. Uh, right. And and the claim that Ukraine is a fake country uh, is is like the is like the United States claiming that England is a fake country. England is a mm. fake country. The idea that they're any different from us is just false consciousness and them driving on the wrong side of the road. If you maintain something like that, you would be rightly taken away and locked up uh, for at least 48 hours for a psychiatric consult, <laughs> right? Uh, but, 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 you know, Russian propagandists make this, well, the Russian president made this kind of claim, uh, and it's equally preposterous. Uh, I, I want to... Yeah. Yeah. I, you you want to finish your thought? No, no, uh, that's uh, just a, a an aside. But go ahead. Okay. Yeah, I just want to run through some, because we we have a bunch of more questions oh, and yeah, comments, yeah, and, and since people have been so generous, I just want to at least read all read the 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 questions yeah. that Gadius has picked out for me because I haven't been able to keep up with the chat. It's been extremely busy, uh, and it's been very interesting. Uh, another question here, and it's a question for uh, E. Michael Jones, and we're not going to talk about him when he's uh, not here, but but I want to read the question because I think it's a good question. He's, it's from Janice. He says, questions for uh, EMJ. On what condition can a country legitimately oppose Russia and fight a defensive war against it? Would you apply the same standards if a country opposed 
and fourth, the US. I think this is a valid point as well. Uh, a lot of people who say that Ukraine, uh, the Ukrainians are being foolish in fighting against uh, the Russian invasion, um, they wouldn't really say the same thing about countries fighting against an American invasion or uh, a, a, an invasion from a country allied with America or fighting alongside American interests. Do, do you have a, an, any thoughts on this, Greg? I think it's a great point. Yeah, it's an excellent point. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Afghanistan, you can't have an independent nation because bad things are going on there. You're growing opium poppies. You can't have your independence back, right? Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, Iran, uh, you can't have an independent nation. Uh, you, you're number one in transsexual surgeries per capita in the world, but you can't have an independent nation. You know, send in the Marines. Uh, exactly. You, you can't apply that anywhere. Uh, it is a kind of, if you will, Wilsonian internationalism, right? Uh, uh, any country can be knocked over any time by... Uh, more powerful countries because bad things are going on there and you don't have the right to sovereignty if bad things are happening in your borders. It's, uh, it's obviously only trotted out when th this standard uh, is, again, <laughs> it, it prejudices American interests in this case, right? Hey, did I lose you? Oh, sorry, I was muted. Um then there's another question here from from John, our friend John. Uh, he says, what does Greg think about the fact that Zelensky, as well as Azov people and so forth, are all saying that they will not cede any territory to end the war? Well, I think that that could be a negotiating position. Uh, that's like a strong initial position. I... I I'm afraid that some of them are absolutely sincere about that, uh, but they they might have to be talked out of this because it's just not realistic. Uh, again, a somewhat smaller and more Ukrainian Ukraine would be a good thing to end this war. And then they need to turn their, themselves, uh, you know, their attentions to more pressing domestic issues like, uh, I don't know, having a country where the number one problem is an immigration or population collapse and, you know, corruption. Uh, Apparently, uh, the wife of an ex-Ukrainian MP showed up on the border of, uh, of Hungary with a bunch of suitcases. And when she was asked to declare what she was bringing in, uh, she opened the suitcases and there were $28 million in American money stuffed in these suitcases and 1.3 million euros. It's, it's an astonishingly corrupt country. Uh, it's mm -hmm. got a lot of domestic problems. Uh, our nationalist friends there know this better than anybody else. Um, of course. I think they would be better off if they could if they could end this in an honorable way by ceding some territory that's already lost de facto and just getting getting back to building a, a, a better, more homogeneous society. But I, mm -hmm. I just know that's not psychologically something that they want. It's probably not politically possible because I don't think any government could survive uh, that. Uh, they, they might be able to survive ceding Crimea, Donetsk, and Luhansk, but they will never survive uh, being neutral or being uh, basically, uh, you know, just playing patty cake with Russia. Uh, it was, it's, it was not, not possible before this war. Uh, it is even more impossible, if that's even possible, even conceivable. If something's impossible, it's impossible, but it's an even greater impossibility after this war because the level of hatred 
is just so high. Uh, mm-hmm. All these people who had, you know, uh, you know, maybe abstract, uh, lovey attitudes towards Russians uh, now have all kinds of concrete reasons to hate them. And so the opposition to uh, being friendly to Russia and amenable to Russia's demands is is just going to be off the charts now. I'm sorry to right. say. Yes, Again, this uh, is blown up in Putin's face. It's blown up in his hand. This is not what he was hoping for or expecting. Uh, I, I wonder what they were smoking in the Kremlin to think that this would have been easy. Uh, but this is not brilliant strategic planning at all. Um, so there's an, a question or a comment from um, Snack in the audience. And he says, what part of losing 300 tanks, seven jets, 10,000 men and countless trucks does Michael uh, does uh, Michael Jones consider winning? Now, now this is a this is an, uh, something that has really been an issue in this war. That it's very difficult to get any information, and the Ukrainian or sort of Ukrainian friendly side has been reporting massive, massive losses on uh, the Russian armed forces, and the Russian armed forces have not really accepted all of them. They have accepted parts of them. I mean, the basically. The Ukrainians have um, claimed some 15,000 casualties in the Russian armed forces. The Russian armed forces have themselves said that they have suffered some 5,000 casualties, and probably the truth is somewhere in between. Uh, so it's very, it's been very difficult to get any reliable information about what's actually going on on the battlefield. And um, a lot of the information we do get is from you know, social media, people filming with their mobile phones from from cities, but very little from the battlefield. So it's very difficult to get, you know, reliable information about how the war is actually going. And that's one more reason why I you, you can't really say one way or the other that there, there's a sort of a, a guaranteed outcome one way or the other. I think it's just very difficult to get reliable, accurate information in this war. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um <clears throat> Uh, there was one news story and that was put up on a Russian paper and then taken down immediately. And of course, uh, the, the Russia boo say, oh, it was a hack. It was a hack. The Ukrainians hacked it and put this misinformation out. But it was um, a, a story reporting nearly 10,000 dead and 15,000 wounded. Okay. Um, it was either a hack or it was the truth and it got pulled from the pages when somebody realized, wait a second here, uh, this hasn't been going on for a month yet. And if, if, if they've lost 10,000 people in a month, that is getting close to the 15,000 that were lost in an Afghanistan in a decade. <laughs> a 10,000 in a month versus 15,000 in a decade. Uh, the Afghanistan debacle, and it was a debacle for the Russians, uh, was one of the things that helped weaken the USSR at the end. It was one of the contributing factors to its, its just breaking down. Uh, if, uh, if this is a similar debacle or a worse debacle for the Russian military, uh, this could be signaling the end of Putin's regime. Uh, there's one thing I, I just want to lay out. There's a there's a pretty good piece that um, 
Steve Saylor put out at, at Talking Mag about this war. And uh, it, it raised the question in my mind. I don't know if he raised it himself in these terms, but it certainly, it certainly occurred to me. You know, we know that the USSR was declining and hollowing out and getting weak for a very long time, even though to outward observers, it looked very powerful, uh, but it was rotting away and it fell apart in 1991. It collapsed. And then there was the, the 90s under Yeltsin and life expectancies were collapsing. The economy was collapsing. Things were being looted. And, uh, and it, was, it was a catastrophic time for Russia. And then Putin came in. And even Putin skeptics like me assumed that Putin was making things somewhat better in the 20 plus years that he's been the strongman in Russia. Even I, a Putin skeptic, assumed that some things were getting better and some things were getting better. You know, the suicide rate went down from the highest in the world to the highest in the world, but still it went down. Uh, things like that, abortions and things like that are still very high. It's a very sick society. But I thought that it was getting stronger. And the possibility has to be contemplated that maybe there's been a steady trajectory of decline going on even under Putin and that things are getting more corrupt and more hollow and more fragile uh, and more slapdash and gerrymandered and just on the, on the brink of breaking down and that this war might have been the test that shows that, wow, this, this society has gotten more corrupt, more fragile, and, uh, and it might just be on the, on the brink of uh, regime change or disintegration. That is a real possibility. Uh, it hadn't occurred to me uh, before this war. Uh, but yeah, the Russian military, which was supposed to waltz in there and take over, and it was going to be a cakewalk like uh, Crimea, uh, they've been bogged down for more than three weeks uh, against a, an objectively or ostensibly much weaker military. Something is up here. Russia might be a lot weaker than we thought it was, at least in conventional terms and its ability to, to wage a conventional war, even on a weak and poor society right next door to it like Ukraine. Uh, yes. Okay, let me just read another question. Uh, where did I find it? Okay, here it is. Uh, and I, I want to say to the viewers and the everyone who's still watching that we've had hundreds hundreds of uh, comments in the chat and so on i can't read all of them and so um gaddy's maximus has been very helpful in uh, collecting some of the most interesting or uh, some of the relevant uh, questions and comments and here's another one and this is from uh Wittgard, and he says what are your thoughts on nationalists supporting nato out of strategic necessity in the long term in order to side with the American and European power bloc against Eurasianism. What are your opinions on the threat of uh, Duganist Eurasianism? I think this is a, a valid question uh, because I don't think America will be, you know, the, the big supreme superpower for a very long time and Europe will not be as... Uh, uh, invulnerable or you know powerful as it has been in uh, recent uh, decades or uh, centuries 
I think things are, are changing and uh, uh, a threat from, from Asia is actually a, a possibility. So uh, this is a very interesting question. What, what are your thoughts on this, Greg? One of the things that was very interesting about Tuka Kuru's show, and I really admire him and I really like the show and I really have to hand it to Nick Gilvey for having him on. Uh, he talked about how uh, Finland, which has been a neutral nation with 800 and some miles of border with Russia, uh, has maintained with a population of 5.5 million people, uh, a 300,000 man army. Uh, and this army is extremely well-trained, extremely well-supplied. Uh, and during all this time, uh, Germany, uh, for instance, uh, has allowed its army to atrophy under NATO. A lot of the NATO countries have allowed their armies, their defense uh, establishments, their industries, and the martial spirit to atrophy because they just trust the United States to do their fighting for them. And they've taken all the money and they put it into social welfare programs and stuff like that. Uh, but it's made Europe weak, depending on America. And America is a dying empire. It's got a lot of problems. Europe cannot, uh, Europe cannot depend on America forever. And this is why uh, the uptick in uh, pro-NATO sentiments actually kind of troubling. Uh, the, the reason why people like NATO now is because they see that Europe needs some kind of collective security organization uh, to protect it. Uh, but NATO has actually sort of made Europe itself weaker. And it's also been a vector by which the United States, which is at the leading edge of uh, Western decline, to uh, inject a lot of bad ideas and bad laws and things like that into various NATO countries. Um, it would be much better if there could be NATO without the United States. <laughs> Let's boot, you know, NATO should boot the United States out uh, and, uh, and, and Europe should be able to defend itself. Uh, and if, if that were the case, Europe would be invincible, I think. Uh, it would be a nuclear power. It would be uh, it would have great industries. Uh, it would have strong armies. If the Finns can support an army of 300,000 men, what could Germany support? You know, what could Hungary support? What, what could France support or Spain? Uh, and it would be good if these countries actually would put more of their, their budgets into self-defense and, and uh, not let the United States basically dictate their foreign policy in exchange for NATO guarantees. That would be an ideal solution. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, in the meantime, we've got NATO, and NATO seems much more popular now than it has been in a long time. Uh, but, but in the long term, you know, it's shackling Europe to a dying empire and outsourcing its foreign policy to crazed you know, neocons and Jews and, and uh, senile goofballs in the United States. It's, it's not a good deal in the long term. But uh, so in the long term, we need some other kind of collective security thing for Europe, I think. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, uh, those were all of the questions that I had uh, from Gadius that he took from the chat. So I want to start wrapping things up here. I think this has been a very good conversation. I'm very happy 
that I did this. I'm very happy that you, Greg, agreed to do this. And the same thing with uh, E. Michael Jones. I think it's been a, it's been an excellent show. It's been an excellent conversation, and it's been a lot of fun. And it seems like everyone in the chat has uh, has really enjoyed it. Uh, so, can you tell Greg, me how many wanna... people were listening in? Um, seems like we had about eighty some people listening at at the most at the same time. With about a mm -hmm. hundred people in the chat. Okay. Wow. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I'm I'm very happy with the with those numbers. So I, I think it's been great. Do you, do you have any final words you want to say before we uh, wrap this up? Uh, well, thank you very much for letting me come on and do this. I enjoyed it. I think I made a strong case for why you know nationalists should give moral support and qualified material support to the Ukraine, Ukrainian side in this war. Uh, I think that a lot of the stuff that came later was not relevant to disputing my case <laughs> for, for, for that question. I just want to remind people that uh, that was the case that I made. I think I made a good case uh, and I'm going to write it out and, or type it out. I've already written it out, but I'm going to type it out and publish it at Countercurrents next week. Uh, just so it's out there on the permanent record and more people can read it. Uh, I think this is an important war. Uh, it's an important war because you know, it's, it's the biggest war in Europe since the Second World War. Uh, it's created a great deal of European solidarity that's not just manufactured. A lot of it's organic and real, and it's coming from people that I wouldn't expect that from. And I think that's a very powerful thing. Um, I think it's also an important thing on the home front in America, uh, just to look at Twitter <laughs> and see all the social signal signaling and the Ukraine banners and stuff like that. A lot of this is, uh, a lot of this is of course absurd. You know, there are people who are more concerned with, uh, Ukraine's border with Russia than they are with America's border with Mexico. Uh, and there are many things that we can exploit here. Uh, this is a great opportunity for people stateside and people in Western Europe and equivalent platforms to impeach the credibility of the establishment. And that's a good thing. However, uh, I'm kind of pleased that a lot of people that I formerly derided as hopeless liberal nitwits are actually standing up for national sovereignty. Uh, and I kind of hope that this improvement will continue, that they won't lapse back into the same stupid stuff that they, uh, that they were usually coming out with. I don't want to take the cheap shot of saying, you hypocrites, you should be liberal internationalists again and, and, and not stand up for uh, and not make noises about nation states. I'm, I'm not going to do that. That's a cheap shot. I want to congratulate these people for showing a little bit of nationalism and, uh, and, and a little bit of European solidarity and, and hope that they can build upon that. Uh, I think that's a, that's a positive sign, even amongst the Twitter people, even amongst the blue and white checks. So if, if this is uh, heralding something bigger, uh, then, then I'm happy about that. I also think that there's another home front and that is looking at our movement and contemplating just how much of it has been corrupted by Russian propaganda. 
And some of this corruption is just that people are being duped, but I think a lot of them are all too willing to be duped. But I do believe that there are actual paid Russian propagandists, uh, that, they're, that they're Russian propaganda operations that have been directed at people in the West. Uh, I think that this could be huge. I'm wondering if Q was just Russia's uh, uh, basically warm up for Z. Uh, I am wondering, uh, you know, how, how deep this rabbit hole goes, uh, how many people are involved in it, uh, how many tangential issues are connected with this. Uh, I, I think it's a real thing. Uh, and, and it's certainly the case that uh, back in 2014, 2015, uh, I was glimpsing, uh, you know, tentacles of Russian propaganda in our movement. Uh, Radix was one of the platforms of that then. Uh, the National Alliance was another outlet for that. Uh, th th those two, uh, you know, Richard Spencer's changed his tune on this. I congratulate him on that. Uh, and the National Alliance has changed their tune on this. I also congratulate them. But there are other platforms like TRS and the NJP that are basically just outlets for Russian propaganda. And I'd like to know why. I'd like to under I'd like to unravel this. Uh, I think it it speaks a lot about the um, let's call it epistemic failures uh, of our movement, uh, and a lot about things like corruption and credulity uh, in our movement. And I I think that we have to address this because it's bad. Uh, it's 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 astonishing that uh, there are people in the white the pro white movement who are actually more exercised about supporting uh, the Russians trashing the whitest nation in Europe than they are about normal pro-white stuff. You know, that, that's, that's disturbing to me. And I'd like to understand this, the roots of this, and I'd like to combat it as much as I can. Uh, I was combating this virtually single-handed back in 2014, 2015. It's a lot less lonely now. More people see that this is a problem. And that's a good thing. So I just want to thank you for this opportunity. I want to thank you for the audience. Uh, and uh, I, uh, I want to dedicate this whole thing to Sergey uh, because it, that really brought home to me just how real this is. This isn't a video game. This yeah. isn't a video game. This isn't a matter of uh, uh, purely symbolically lib owning on Twitter. Uh, when you're cheering for more ghosts in Kiev, like that disgraceful, disgusting, sinister clown, uh, Nick Fuentes, you're, you're cheering for actual people dying. Uh, and, uh, it, it's real, it's real. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's very real to me. It's real to you. And I think that our movement needs to be on the right side of this. We don't have the power to make foreign policy. What we do have the power to do is tell the truth about foreign policy. And when you see vast swaths of our movement incapable or unwilling or uninterested in doing that, then we have a serious problem that needs to be addressed. So thank you. Thank you so much, Greg. Uh, thank you so much. This has been great. I wanna, I'm, I'm really glad that you accepted. And of course, also that Jones accepted. I think this has been an excellent conversation. It's been very entertaining for everyone. And I think the, the chat has been very lively. They've been very enthusiastic. 
so thank you so much for doing this. And I'm, like I said, I very much appreciate Jones accepting the invitation as well, even though we did go, uh, you know, for a bit longer than expected. But that's the way it goes. And I, I do want to give a special thanks to everyone who, who signed up and who bought a ticket. And some of you have given really uh, generous uh, Super Chats donations in addition. And that's the only way that a channel like this can continue. It's with the, the help of the viewers. Uh, we have no wealthy backers. <laughs> so that's the only way we can continue. And I, I want to thank you so much for being good sports as well about some of the tech issues. Uh, before we started, I, I had some problems sending out the instructions to everyone. It seemed like everyone didn't get the instructions of how to join the channel. So that was a bit of a challenge. And then uh, this is a bit experimental because I don't know of anyone else who's, who does live streams this way. So it's, it's a bit clunky and it was a bit shaky in the beginning. Uh, I don't really know how it's been for you out there, uh, the listeners and the viewers, uh, if it's if the stream has been working okay, I'd like to hear that in the chat as well. But I'd like to thank you so much for being, uh, being good sports about uh, some of the tech issues. And, and most of all, of course, since this is a fundraiser event, uh, I want to thank you so much for your generosity in supporting my work and supporting this channel. So uh, thank you so much, folks. This has been great. I'm going to leave the chat open for a while. And uh, like I said, please do leave uh, a comment uh, and tell me a little bit about uh, how, uh, how this has been working and how you've experienced this stream and if you think that this is something that we should continue with. So thank you so much, folks. And uh, I'll talk to you again next time. Bye-bye.